I love that. In the worship, there was a lot there about God's, God being with us wherever we are, and that's good. Um, I feel like I'm doing a lot of setup here. <laughs> that's a good thought to keep in your mind. I'm going to be speaking kind of similarly about that. Um, I was speaking to the folks doing the coffee this morning, and someone had a great idea. Um, they said, if you've got like plastic cups at home, um, home, you know, I saw Charlie sporting a fancy sports mug. Yeah, bring those. You know, we 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 are. Um, it's okay if you don't have one or if you you forget to bring one, but um, it's good to practice that kind of good stewardship, so we're not running through loads of paper paper cups. And if you don't have one, uh, Love Falkirk will sell you one. So not only can you have a nice plastic mug to bring with you, but you'll be helping Love Falkirk. Also as well, don't forget the Love Falkirk table is there every week for us to, um, to be contributing to. Right, last week I preached, and the scriptures that I had on the screen were the wrong ones from the ones that I was reading, and nobody said anything. You let me go the whole 25 minutes, and nobody made a peep. So if that happens this week, shame on you for making me look foolish. No, I made myself look foolish, really. Um, Kenneth, I'm just overjoyed to see you. Right, Kenneth, stick together anyway, but um, it's great to have you here this morning. We've been praying for you, and what do you know? Prayers work. Um, it's impossible to kind of overestimate how important the book of Genesis is in kind of the Hebrew sense of identity. Um, that it's, it contains kind of their fundamental understanding of human origins and purpose and about human rebellion and sin, how all that started, um, about God's initial redemptive action and interaction with humanity through their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they're continually referring back to that. And the, the last part of Genesis has this um, story of Jacob and Joseph, and actually takes up the last 14 chapters of the book. And I don't know if you remember much about the story beyond Andrew Lloyd Webber's version um, that he so graciously gave to us. But in this story, Joseph is the younger brother, and his older brothers hate him because they feel like um, their father loves him more than them. And to, to show this, their father even gave him this ornamental robe, which is pretty cool. Like if, if your father gives you nice dreads, and the rest of you are getting kind of pre-marked stuff. Then it kind of shows there's a little bit of, of kind of uh, favoritism there. Um, so one day, his brothers are out in this pasture, and they're looking after their father's sheep. And Jacob, or he becomes renamed Israel, um, sends Joseph out to find his brothers to bring them back to their father. But his brothers see him from a distance, and they plot first to kill him. Um, so they strip him of his robe. And they're getting ready to kill him, but then they change their minds. And instead of killing him, they send him into servitude to people from a foreign country. And they dip Joseph's robe in blood, and they return to their father. And when their father, Israel, is given the robe, he believes that his son has been killed by wild animals in a field. But actually what happens is Joseph is sold to Potiphar, who's an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh. And Potiphar makes Joseph head of his household, and things are good. Joseph is living the good life. However, when Joseph resists Potiphar's wife's attempts to seduce him, she accuses him of assault and he is imprisoned. 
And Joseph goes from a position of privilege to one of deep humiliation. But through a series of events, Joseph is given the opportunity to interpret some dreams for Pharaoh, who is so impressed that he has him released from prison. And Joseph is given a ring and a new cloak, a new garment made of linen. And he is raised up to a position over Egypt, second only to Pharaoh himself. And then a famine hits the land. But thankfully, Joseph was wise, and he foresaw this problem with the help of God. And he had enough grain stored up so that Egypt was spared from the famine. They had so much grain that actually the other nations would come to buy from them. And Joseph's father and brothers, we go back to them in the story, they are suffering in the famine. And so they go to Egypt to buy grain. And there they discover that their lost younger brother is alive. So they are sent back to tell their father that their brother is alive, and he rushes out to meet Joseph. And at the same time, Joseph is making his way to see his father. And when they meet, it says in Genesis 46, Joseph presented himself to his father, fell on his neck. It's <laughs> a really biblical way to actually fall on his neck like WWF. He means he gave him a, gave him a big hug, fell on his neck uh, and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, I can now die having seen for myself that you are still alive. And because of Joseph's position of influence and power, the family are brought to be where he is, and they can now enjoy the benefits of his position. And in the final chapter of Genesis, Joseph's brothers are afraid of him because their dad dies, Israel dies, and they think now Joseph has become kind of the leader of the family and he's going to get his revenge on us. And so they go to him, they go to Joseph, they present themselves and they say, Joseph, we are your, let us just be your servants, have mercy on us. And Joseph doesn't treat them as servants, he forgives them and reminds them that they are family and that they, the whole family is then reunited. Is anybody getting any sparks of anything with that story yet? But we're going to do our kind of talking back and forth thing a little bit this morning. Is anybody, is that echoing anything for you? Nobody, Georgia? Yeah, I have, I have. What do you think? Um, Sharina videos that I watch on YouTube, this is like Joseph that I watch quite a lot. Uh-huh. I already watched a part when he revealed himself to his brother. Yeah, it's pretty amazing, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, we'll keep going. Is anybody, sorry, I heard a whisper. No, okay. <laughs> this, um, this redemptive narrative of the son estranged from the father sent out into a foreign land but who returns and his, who is reunited with his father and family in an extravagant display of forgiveness. The son who was considered dead, but is now alive. All of this, this narrative would be deep in the Hebrew psyche. And in the story, Joseph must enter a series of trials and suffering, not of his own making, so that his family can be saved. And it's through Joseph's journey into lostness, into humiliation, through death, or at least the presumption of death, to being raised up, to being found alive and reunited with the father, with his father. It's through all of that story that the nation of Israel is actually saved and preserved. And without Joseph's journey, there would be no nation of Israel. I want you to keep that kind of narrative idea in your head, this idea of the son that's estranged from the father and then returns and the reuniting. 
Because later on in the Gospels, when Jesus is challenged about his ministry, I think that the parable that he tells echoes this narrative that they would have known, this Joseph narrative. But as always with Jesus, he just twists it slightly to make it mean something a little bit different. So in, in the book of Luke, Joseph, Jesus, not Joseph, Jesus has just told this parable, told this parable about a guy who wants to throw a party. And the guy invites all of his, the people that he knows. And all the people that he knows uh, make, begin making excuses about why they can't come to the party. And so the man who wants to throw the party gets upset. And he says to his servant, go out and gather in to me all of the people who are poor, who are in the alleys and the side streets and the, the disabled and the lame and the blind and bring them to the party because I want my house to be filled so he's told this story about a guy who's going out and bringing people back into this house to celebrate. And the, because he's telling these kind of stories, um, there's a great response. And lots of people start following Jesus, including the wrong kinds of people. And the Pharisees get a little bit ticked off about this. Um, in Luke 15, verse 1, it says, Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him. So these are the people that Jesus is attracting. And uh, the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So they're not happy about the kind of people that Jesus is hanging about with. And they're starting to grumble and questioning the legitimacy of his ministry. If you really are a man of God, you surely wouldn't be having these kind of people coming and hanging about with you. You'd You'd be having godly people coming and hanging around with you. And actually, the Pharisees had several sayings and teachings that they had to keep um, themselves right. Um, And one of the sayings that they had was this, let a man never associate with a wicked person, not even for the purposes of bringing him near to the Torah. So this idea is you stay away from wicked people. Even if you have a good intention of bringing them back to the law of God, don't associate with them. That's not how you do it. You become holy, you set yourself as an example, and they will be attracted to that, but you don't go and associate yourselves with them. So if Jesus is this holy man, this this, um, man of God that he's claiming to be, um, he wouldn't be associating with these kinds of people, especially if he has a love for the law of God. And so Jesus responds as he tells three parables, and we're going to look at those. Is that all right? You with me so far? Yeah. Good. Okay, anything to say, you can say it, you know. Uh, Before we get into the parables, a quick note about parables. Parables are notoriously difficult to define what they are. At their heart, they use a story with familiar elements to try to unlock a truth about something else. So there's this guy called Theon. He was a first century Greek teacher, and he described the parable as a fictitious saying that pictures truth, right? A made-up story that gives you a picture of what truth is. But that doesn't mean that in a parable there's meaning behind every detail of the parable, which is kind of what we want to do. We want to read through the parable and say, this means this, and this means this, and this means... And sometimes they're just parts of the story. What's important is the general sense of truth that's revealed through the parable. And so Jesus is using parables all through his ministry to help people grasp truths about the kingdom. But in this section, he's going to tell a parable to justify his ministry what he's doing to try to explain what it is that he understands that God has sent him to do. And the first one of these is in Luke 15, um, verse 3. It says this, 
So he told them this parable, which one of you having a hundred sheep and losing one of them does not leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? When he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders and rejoices. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me for I found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So Jesus begins this parable with a question. Which one of you, if you didn't have 100 sheep and one of them was lost, which one of you wouldn't leave the 99 in the wilderness and go out and find the one that was lost? And the answer to that question is, none of us would. That's crazy. You wouldn't leave your whole flock in the wilderness to go out and find one sheep. It's not worth, it's not worth the effort. So already there's this strange conflict of understanding between the Pharisees in between Jesus. And we try to do lots of interpretation with this parable. Who is the one sheep? Is that those who are in the world and don't know Jesus? Who are the 99? Is that the church? Does this mean that Jesus doesn't care about the church, that he's more intent about going out into the street? All this stuff, and I think that's all kind of missing the point. I think what Jesus is saying, he's trying to reveal to the Pharisees, is the character of God that is being revealed in his ministry. God places value on those people that others consider lost or not worth the effort. And then their criticism of Jesus, they, the Pharisees have shown their misunderstanding of what, what he is doing. They think that his association with sinners shows that he is not of God. But with this parable, Jesus says that his association with those that they consider less is actually a revelation of God's heart. And Jesus finishes the parable by saying that God rejoices over one sinner who repents. But here's the weird thing about the parable. How does a sheep get back to the flock? Has to be carried, right? Has to be led. So the sheep doesn't turn around itself and say, I think I'll go find the flock again. So there's a necessity for a sending out, someone to go out to bring the sheep back. So repentance has some, the repentance that's involved here needs some, somebody to go and get the person and bring them back. Okay, cool. Got that? So that's the first parable that he throws down. Second parable, a little bit shorter one, the parable of the lost coin. That's in verse 8 of Luke 15. It says, What woman, or what woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one of them, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there's joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Okay, cool. It's kind of a similar vibe to this one. The woman is expending all of her effort and all of her energy to find what she has lost. And there's another interesting thing about this. And I was talking to Sandra about this last night. We were, we were laughing about it. So, yeah, she's got 10 silver coins. She loses one. So you might look for that because it's probably pretty valuable, you know, fairly valuable. They, they reckon it's probably worth about a day's wages. So what this woman does is she lights a lamp using expensive oil to look around the house, spends the day looking for it, and then once she's found the coin, invites her friends over for a party. How do you think she paid for the party? It's almost like the effort that she goes to and the joy that she expends for this coin is, not, is worth more than what apparently the coin is worth. And Jesus is painting this picture of this is what's happening in the kingdom of God. This is the mission that God has come 
has sent me to come and perform. If this woman in the parable is willing to expend all of her energy to recover that coin, won't God do the same? Won't God expend energy and effort to get back what belongs to him? And won't he rejoice like the woman when he finds it? And again, in the parable, the the coin doesn't return itself to her purse. She has to go and look for it to bring it back. And again, there's this thing about repentance at the end. There's more joy in heaven over this one, this one, uh, one sinner who repents. But in the story, someone has to go and find the coin to bring it back. Okay, you still with me? Okay. You seen where this, have you seen where this is going yet? Um, so, okay. So in those two stories, who do, you associate Jesus, who do you associate Jesus with in the first story of the parable of the lost sheep? If you were going to say Jesus, if you were going to look for Jesus in that story, if he's talking about his own ministry, right, I think we can safely assume that Jesus is somewhere in that story. So who is Jesus in the story? Shepherd. Okay, cool. And uh, the second story, who would you associate Jesus with in the story? Mm-hmm. The woman who's gone to find the lost coin. Okay. Now Jesus tells a third story. And as we read this, I want you to think about who do we associate Jesus with in this story. Uh, this is what was commonly called the, pro- the parable of the prodigal son. Um, let's read it. And he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that falls to me. And he divided his living between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took his journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in loose living. And when he'd spent everything, a great famine arose in that country. And he began to be in want. So he went and joined himself to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have fed on the pods that the swine ate, but no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have enough bread, enough uh, and to spare, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise. And go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was yet at a distance, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and make merry. For this my son was dead and he is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to make merry. (laughs) Now his elder son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked, what does this mean? And he said to him, your brother has come. And your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received them safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and, and entreated him. But he answered his father, Lo, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. And yet you never gave me a goat that I might make merry with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your living with harlots, 
you killed for him the fatted calf. And he said to him, son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to make Mary and be glad, for this brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Okay, cool. Who, who, who? Well, let's look at this. I've got a wee table here if you put this up. There's slight differences about these three parables that he tells in sequence. So Jesus is making a point here. The first two parables, something is lost. The one who lost it searches until they find it. There's rejoicing or celebration over finding what was lost. And there's this phrase, there's joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So that's the pattern that happens in the first two. But the third parable that Jesus tells changes the pattern. The father allows the son to leave home. So it's not that the son is lost. The father allows the son to leave home. The father stays at home. He doesn't go seeking the son. So in these other two stories, there's this going out and seeking. But in this one, nobody goes out to seek the son. As a result of hard times, the son repents and returns home. The son is welcomed home, forgiven, and reinstated. There's a celebration. Then there's this phrase, my son was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The elder son refuses to accept the younger brother back. And then again, the repetition of this phrase, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So in the first two stories, someone goes out to find what is lost. Who did we say was associated with the shepherd? And who did we say was associated with the woman? Right. Who goes out in this story? Son. Son goes out. Oh, some of you are looking worried. (laughs) The son goes out. And how does the son return? Who brings the son back? Mm -hmm. Yep. The traditional interpretation of this, and it's it's great, it's it's brilliant. And I'm not. Please hear me. I'm not saying to you this to you today. Like everything you have heard it said thus, but I say to you, no. So the traditional interpretation of this is that when we are when we lose ourselves. We take what God has given us and we waste it in the world. We waste our, um, the love and um, the belonging that we have with God and we waste it on sin. That when we decide to return to God in repentance, that we should know that God not only accepts us back, but that he is actually waiting for us to return and that the love that he has for us and the forgiveness that he has for us is extravagant. We are restored to our position of sonship or daughtership with God. Right. So that's how this parable is Normally, we talk about it. But I think that in there, Jesus is getting at something more in the, in the pattern that's established here. And what's interesting about the traditional interpretation is it leaves Jesus out. It's about our repentance and our going back to the Father. But if Jesus is telling these two stories about someone who goes out to find someone, how does that relate to this third parable in the sequence? And remember, Jesus is responding to the accusation of the Pharisees that he's identifying with sinners. If he's a man of God, then surely he's wasting his calling on living among those who they see as far from God. And it's almost as if in this parable, Jesus is saying, if you're criticizing me for identifying with sinners, I'm telling you that that is the reason that I came. You think I need to repent for being with sinners, 
But I am asking you, how are those who are lost supposed to repent unless someone goes to them and leads them from where they are back to their Father in heaven? And what if, just what if, maybe we can see this. What if in the prodigal son story, Jesus is actually describing his ministry of identifying with the sinners of the world? The story is aimed at the Pharisees. This is how you see me as an Israelite that's squandering my God-given inheritance by hanging out with the wrong people. But I'm telling you that what looks like wasteful living is actually God's purpose for me. To give all the Father has given me, to expend my energy and effort going to identifying with and bringing back the lost to my Father's house. So yes, the story of the prodigal son is the story of a sinner, a son who left his father's house, fell into sin, and later returns. But what if Jesus has come to live that story, to inhabit that story, so that it becomes a story of redemption? What if, in telling the story, Jesus is saying that his mission is to be identified with the lost and the sinner, so that their story becomes his story? And what if, in identifying himself with their story, Jesus makes a way for them to be identified with his story? What if, just like in the Joseph story, it's the son who enters the place of suffering and humiliation, and without that, the ones that he loves can't be redeemed and restored? And could it be with this parable that Jesus is not just identifying the lostness of humanity, but Jesus is identifying with the lostness of humanity so that he can bring a lost humanity back to his father? When we think about it just for a minute, Jesus left his father to go to a foreign land. He gave away all that the father had given him among the sinful. Jesus ended up in a place of utter humiliation Loneliness and destitution, just like the sun among the pigs. They had food and he had nothing, alone in a field. He is rejected by everyone, treated worse than an animal. And when he comes to himself, which we could see as the resurrection, he says, I will arise and go to my father. And the part that's maybe most worrying about reading the parable this way is the part where the son says, I, am a, I have sinned before you. But didn't Jesus carry with him the burden of our sin back to the Father? Didn't Jesus take responsibility for our sin? And on the cross, wasn't Jesus treated as a sinner, considered cursed of God, and mocked for his claims that he was the Son of God? Surely this man could not be the Son of God. On the cross are two criminals in Luke 23. One of them says to him, are you not the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed have been condemned justly for we are getting what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he replied, truly I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. On the cross, Jesus is identified with the criminals and with the sinners. But when the one confesses faith in him, they become identified with him and they receive his 
restoration, resurrection. Irenaeus, who was a church father, he had this saying about Jesus. He said, he became what we are in order that we might become what he is. He had this theory called recapitulation. They said that what Jesus came to do was to relive the story of humanity, to enter into the places where we had messed everything up, to relive it all, but this time to do it right. Philippians 2 says this, let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, assuming human likeness, and being found in appearance as a human, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him even more highly and gave him the name that is above every other name. So that at the name given to Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The story of humbling and humiliation so that he can be exalted. And 2 Corinthians 5 says, For our sake, God made the one who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And if the Pharisees say to Jesus that he has guilt by association with who he's hanging out with, then Jesus might reply that those people have righteousness by their association with him. I want to read you a quick something from this book. This is a guy, Brother Pierre-Marie. He writes this. He who is born not from human stock or human desire or human will, but from God himself, one day took to himself everything that was under his footstool and left with his inheritance, his title of son, and the whole ransom price. He left for a far country, the faraway land, where he became as human beings are and emptied himself. His own people did not accept him, and his first bed was a bed of straw. Like a root in arid ground, he grew up before us. He was despised, the lowest of men before whom one covers his face. Very soon he came to know exile, hostility, loneliness, after having given away everything in a life of bounty, his worth, his peace, his light, his truth, his life, all the treasures of knowledge and wisdom and the hidden mystery kept secret for endless ages. After having lost himself among the lost children of the house of Israel, spending his time with the sick and not with the well-to-do, with the sinners and not with the just, and even with the prostitutes to whom he promised entrance into the kingdom of his father. After having been treated as a glutton and a drunkard, as a friend of tax collectors and sinners, as a Samaritan, a possessed, a blasphemer, after having offered everything, even his body and his blood, after having felt deeply in himself sadness, anguish, and a troubled soul, after having gone to the bottom of despair with which he voluntarily dressed himself as being abandoned by his father, far away from the source of living water, he cried out from the cross on which he was nailed, I am thirsty. He was laid to rest in the dust and the shadow of death. And there on the third day, he rose up from the depths of hell to where he had descended, burdened with the crimes of us all. He bore our sins, our sorrows he carried. Standing straight, he cried out, yes, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. And he ascended to heaven. And then in the silence, looking at his son and all of his children, since his son had become all in all, the father said to his servants, quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Let us eat and celebrate, 
because my children, who, as you know, were dead, have returned to life. They were lost and have been found again. My prodigal son has brought them all back. And they all began to have a feast dressed in their long robes, washed white in the blood of the lamb. If it's possible to see that in this story, Jesus is entering our story and bringing us back to the Father, then what it tells us is that while the message of repentance is important, that each of us has to acknowledge that we are the son lost in a field who squandered the life that God has given us and that we're all in need of returning to our father, that we are all prodigals. What this reading tells us is that when we return, we are not on our own. It's that Jesus enters into the place of our sin. He comes and identifies with us in our worst moments. He comes alongside us. And the sin that is ours, he bears on himself. And he takes responsibility for it. And he pays the price for it on the cross. And he leads us back on the journey, back to our Father's house. Jesus has fully entered into our experience. And our journey becomes his journey. And his journey becomes our journey. And it also means that with the people that we come into contact with, and the people that we might consider to be far from God, the people we might think are not worth the effort or the extravagance or the cost or paying the price to go and be with them. What this says is, no, Jesus entered into the worst places, the worst places of humiliation and darkness and of sin. And he wants to lead those people back. He will associate with those who are the furthest from God. And so we ought to, too. We have been restored to our Father's house. Then we join Jesus in his mission of going out and bringing others back to his Father's house. Shall we pray?